Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. spirit of surrendering all to him. Here now, the reading of God's word, I invite you to look in your Bibles, in your order of worship, to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew... How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The word of the Lord. Let's pray now and ask God's blessing upon his preached word. Father, we thank you for your graciousness to us to give us your word. Thank you for this passage. Uh, Thank you for showing us the way in which we have favor with you as through your cross, and you have made that abundantly clear, and we are grateful. So, Father, I ask through your spirit this morning, would you revive our hearts? Father, would you give us a passion for the gospel as we see your passionate love for us? And Father, I do pray uh, for those in our congregation who are in particular need of your grace this morning. We, We pray for Jeff and Jen Ford as they mourn the loss of Jen's dad last night. Father, give your healing comfort to the Ford household. Well, Father, we pray for Mac and Jess Hold and thanksgiving for the birth of their son. Would, Lord, would your hand be upon them? And Father, we pray for Sam Taff and his team and RUF as they are at the beach this week learning more about the same gospel we are proclaiming now. Well, Father, bless that time and be with them. Uh, Lord, it is, it is our honor to be in your presence, so would you meet with us now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Have you ever been to a dinner party? or to a social setting of some sort, 
and you are talking to someone and you get the unmistakable feeling they are looking at you, but they are trying to listen in on another conversation of someone else. Don't you hate when that happens? I hope we all hate when we're the ones doing it, but we certainly all hate when it's done to us. It really is the worst because what you understand is to the person talking to you, you're really not that valuable at all, right? And that's why we don't like it. It's obvious that the person who is in front of us cares more about impressing someone else or hearing about someone else or getting the attention or affection of someone else. We don't like that person talking to us because they're not real. They're fake. What they're saying with their words and what they're doing with their actions are not the same thing. So here's a question I have for all of us this morning. And I want you to be honest. Keep it to yourself, but be honest. Who do you need their approval this morning? Truthfully, whose approval are you most concerned about today? Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a child. But in your heart, who is that person? What I want us to see this morning is that your quest for the approval of others, even inside the household of God, will drive you far away from the good news of Jesus Christ and take away the joy that he has purchased for you. All right, look back at Galatians chapter 2. We've been studying this great letter about free grace, and we're going to see applications and implications of it this morning. Free grace really is the fact that God loves you because he has chosen to set his affection upon you. It's not what you have done to earn his love, Rather, it is he has chosen to give it. We have seen how the Apostle Paul received this grace, and his intent then and his intent now through the Spirit is to remind us and revive our hearts that our religious effort will not produce God's favor, but rather our effort to impress others by all of our good action actually is dangerous, it is worthless, and it takes our joy away. So, this morning, we're going to see yet another encounter with these two apostles, Peter and Paul. Uh, As recorded in Galatians, this is the third conversation they have had. Uh, They met three years after Paul's conversion, and then we see they met 14 years after his conversion, both times in Jerusalem. Now, they are in Antioch, which was much more the area that Paul was accustomed to being in. And up until now, their friendship had been a beautiful thing. Here these two great leaders of the faith have been cooperating on how God has saved people in the work and they are working hard to take this gospel to the world. They have enjoyed fellowship with each other and they have enjoyed fellowship with the Lord. Now though, things are going to get interesting. In fact, it gets a little awkward as Paul attacks Peter. Uh, This is the equivalent of a verbal altercation at the Antioch church potluck between the two most important people there. It's weird, but it's important. And it's in the midst of this heated discussion that we see one of the greatest applications of our faith. And that is our theology is to drive our behavior. What we believe is to affect what we do. And what we see in Peter's life is what he believed did not affect his behavior. Paul's aim was to convince the Galatians to reject any notion that we add anything to Jesus' work on the cross, including how we care about other people and what they think of us. 
And this encounter reveals that we do not need anyone's approval to enjoy Jesus because we have his. Okay, so my prayer for us this morning is that our hearts would be revived as we look at two things. First, see the problem of a religious lifestyle. The problem of a religious lifestyle. And then secondly, see the power for a lifestyle of grace. That is what fuels our lifestyle of grace. So first, notice, notice the problem with this religious lifestyle. And really, Peter is our illustration this morning. Verse 11, when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. So if you're familiar with Peter, you know that he had a history of cowardice behavior. In the Gospels, he denied Christ. But then also through the power of the Spirit, we see in the book of Acts and in the book of Galatians that Peter had been very courageous. Now, though, just like the rest of us, his sinful nature is revealed yet again. And he reverted to a moment of weakness. Here's the situation going on. The Jews in that day used dietary restrictions as a way of separating themselves from non-Jewish people. And that included those wrongly here who were saying they were followers of Jesus. But it was a way in which they could show their distinction and their religious behavior. Included in that practice was the people with whom you shared a meal. So that is, the people who you would sit down and dine with was a way of showing your belief in the gospel. In their culture, table fellowship was reserved for those like yourself, your people, excluding everyone else. So now, of course, Jesus changed all of that. Peter was in Antioch, not in Jerusalem, a city with a strong multi-ethnic background. And it was very easy for Peter to eat with everyone because there weren't a lot of Jews there. Now remember, Peter knew that Jesus had changed all of these Old Testament principles. In Acts chapter 10, uh, we see that Jesus' work on the cross ended the need for this cultural separation. Peter knew that. But notice in verse 12, James, who was one of Peter's friends, the half-brother of Jesus, showed up in Antioch and he brought a gang of friends with him. They were Jewish and Peter would have known them. When Peter saw what they were doing, his old buddies, and realized that they were not eating with these Gentiles, instead of leading them in the right direction, he, in a moment of weakness, made the conscientious decision, I will now separate again as well because I want their approval. He did what was easy. He quit eating with the common people who were just mere followers of Jesus And he wanted to find the elite people who were followers of Jesus who would be impressed with him. And because of this fear of rejection from his friends, he chose to separate himself yet again. So note, Peter let his desire to be liked by one group affect his relationship with another group and in so doing affected his relationship with all of them. You see, it's a religious lifestyle, and the problem is he is burning with anxiety in his heart, and now he's not liked by anybody. 
You know, this time last year, uh, when quarantine was, uh, we weren't sure what all was going on. I freely admit, I, I watched a little more TV than I'm accustomed to. And Lisa and I watched a show that many of y'all had probably already seen, but we had never watched it before. We watched Downton Abbey. Uh, so if you're familiar with Downton Abbey, you know what that's about. It was essentially a show that was about the soap opera and day-to-day life of this wealthy class and the servants who lived in the same home with them in 20th century England. Kind of the House of Lords, that's, that whole thing. It's a story of an earl named Lord Grantham and his family and kind of all the encounters that they had with these servants all at the same time living in one household. Again, it was just a big soap opera. I liked it, but it, that's all it was. Uh, but here's what I found interesting. The biggest snob in the show wasn't Lady Mary, wasn't Lord Grantham, those who could have been. It was the butler, Carson. He looked down on everybody. But the deal with Carson's, he was one of the servants. He wasn't part of the royal family. He wasn't the earl. He wasn't anything. But yet in his heart, he measured everybody through his lens. He was by far the biggest snob in the whole show. And notice the power of one's desire for the approval of other people. That even when we're servants, we will measure ourselves against anybody so that we can feel that we are better than them. This desire can drive us to abandon all that we know is true and leave us pathetically looking for someone to notice us, to tell us that we have done a good job about something. Do you see the problem with a lifestyle of religiosity? That is where we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. We are filled with anxiety of, have I done enough and what are they saying about me? This is dangerous. Verse 13 says that even Barnabas began to separate himself at the dinner table just like Peter. Barnabas was a disciple of Paul, not Peter. All he had ever known was free grace. He had never practiced any of this. But yet, for the love of attention from this exalted class, it was too great for either of them. This is not the joyful life that Christ has for us. Verse 14, Paul sees what's going on and he can handle it no more. Paul saw their actions and he lit into Peter. Again, let your imagination go. Here are the two most recognized leaders in the church at the time. They're around the dinner table. And Peter's very public sin earned him a very public rebuke. Maybe someone said something along the lines of, Hey boys, y'all need to take this outside. And Paul said, Oh no, I want everybody to hear what I'm about to tell Peter. That's how serious it was. The problem, Peter's theology was right. But his actions were wrong. His actions contradicted the cross. See, what was really going on is that Peter's decisions were hurting other people. He hurt these Gentiles who now felt like second-class citizens. For all they had done was believed upon Jesus, as if that was not enough. But he also hurt Barnabas and these others for thinking too highly of themselves and taking their eyes off the cross of Christ and onto themselves. Peter hurt himself. By being weak, he was now losing his joy of what Christ had done for him. A mentor of mine once said that the reason I love doctrine is because I love people. 
You see, for Peter, his doctrine was right, but he was hurting people at the same time. Note, Paul's appropriate anger went all the way to the end of the conversation. In front of everyone, he looks at Peter and says, you're a hypocrite. A hypocrite. That's bad. You know what a hypocrite really means? It means that you're a fake. It means it was an ancient uh, Greek term that when you're in a theater, you wore a mask that covered your face, meaning what you're playing on stage, it's not really you. When Paul told Peter he was a hypocrite, he said that what you're saying about free grace, it's not really you. You say it with your mouth, but you don't actually believe it. Peter's refusal to eat with other Christians was a declaration. I don't really believe in free grace at all. I'm just pretending and using this as a way to feel better about me. See, the problem with a life like this is it's sad. Who wants to live like that? His actions shouted. He took God's gift of free grace for himself, but he would not give the same grace to anyone else. And in this moment of weakness, what was actually a simple thing apparently was actually very incredibly powerful. This was Peter in his own heart saying, I will determine who sits at my table. This is my table. I will eat as I please and I will choose who comes here. Rather than him being a recipient of the Lord's kindness and just being grateful to be here. Church, please see this morning just how quickly we can fall into the trap of a religious lifestyle. A life of selfishness, of self-centeredness. When we compare ourselves with each other, we compromise. And when we compromise, we cancel. Jesus is no longer the issue. Maybe you're tempted to think that Paul was a little tough on Peter. Maybe he should have eased off just a little bit. Let me, let me suggest otherwise. I think Paul did exactly the right thing. Why did Peter do this first? Of course, as Scripture says, he simply feared man's approval. Peter just could not handle the ridicule from his friends. He couldn't handle it. He wanted his community to like him and to accept him. And the pathway to their approval meant more religious actions, more separation, more dress codes, more dietary codes, more classism, more Bible study attendance, more whatever. Less about the cross, less about Jesus, less about grace. He would leave his new friends hanging just to get the approval by the more work that I did. You see, it's serious. But there's another element to his hypocrisy, and we can't leave it out. And this was simply inside of Peter's heart, there was a racial and cultural superiority that lived inside of him. Peter had been trained to look down on everyone who was not Jewish his entire life. And when push came to shove, even with the Holy Spirit inside of him, he caved into his freedom to associate with only those from his personal background and to shame all the other image bearers of the Lord. Racism was alive and active in his heart. Peter's sin was real and it was serious. And Paul would not have it. See, Peter's story reveals that one can answer all the theological questions correctly, 
But your life could be a total mess. A life of constant comparison is a life of anxiety and not a life of joy. Inside of Peter's anxious, proud, comparative, selfish heart. What I think what was really going on for him is the same thing that's going on for every single one of us this morning. Is we want to do something to get you to notice us. And when we focus on all the good activities that we do or all the positions that we hold, we are prone to compare ourselves to everyone else and say, look how much more I'm doing than you. And then in our hearts we strut thinking about I'm better than so and so. But then the message of the cross comes along and proclaims all the people you aim to be better than In Christ, they're the exact same as you. And then for us, in our sinful hearts, Jesus has demoted us to where we are no longer the issue, but he is. And the gospel of Christ took away Peter's chance to show off. And it does the same for us. So now all we have to talk about is Jesus, as if he were not enough. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his spirit, his body, his return, his family, his glory. It's all about him. It's all about him. It's not about us. So please see this morning, church, you are important. Your positions do matter. Your opinions matter. Your Bible study attendance matters. It all matters. We are to live like Christ, but it's all because Jesus has set us free That's what's going on. When we live in step with his spirit, we're free. The problem of a religious lifestyle is that when we compare ourselves to each other, the gospel's forgotten. Okay, who wants that? Nobody. Nobody. So what's the solution? Part two, look quickly. Verses 16 and 17, and notice the fuel for this lifestyle. The power for the lifestyle of grace. The point at hand for Paul was to convince these Galatians not to give in to the pressure, not to give in to conforming. His tool to convince them is perhaps the biggest issue in the entire Bible. And it's this question, how, how can a sinful person exist inside the presence of a holy God? How would they and how do we who freely admit that we are not perfect and that we have sin in our heart, how do we hope to be reconciled and have relationship with the God who made us and we sinned against? Verses 15 and 16 answer this question, and we'll see that this is the fuel, this is the power by which we live. These passages highlight what we refer to in the theological world as the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And I would argue there are few things more important than this. This was the point of the Protestant Reformation, and it is still the chief issue in the church today. What is justification, and why do we care so much about it? The way Paul uses the term here, understand this is a legal word where a guilty party is declared righteous. Not just innocent, but righteous. Please see, this is a scandal. It's someone who is guilty is now declared not just not guilty, but righteous. Hear these words from Paul again to the Corinthians about Jesus. It says, God made him who had no sin to become sin 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see this morning, justification by faith alone says that Jesus, yes, took all of our sin upon himself. He was punished for our sin. But when we put our faith in him, it's not just our punishment that goes away. But now the righteousness of Jesus is put upon us. That's a huge and. He took out the old and he gave us the new. He gave us Jesus himself. As Will prayed this morning uh, for these guys who are going to take their presbytery exams uh, later this week. You better believe one of the questions for those taking their theology exam will be something along the lines of, what is your view of justification by faith alone? And you also better believe their answer better be something along the lines of, Jesus took away my sin, but Jesus also provided all of my righteousness. So now when God looks at us, he no longer sees our old life. He sees the righteousness of Jesus, period. You can't get more love than you are right now. That's it. The point Paul was making, he does so throughout the entire New Testament. The result of our faith in Christ is that we'll never be condemned again and we'll never be more loved than we are right now. For all of eternity, going forward, you will only be viewed as his loving son or daughter. That's it. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He now looks at us and he sees his son. The blood of Jesus covers us. He is our identity. Do you see how this fuels your faith? Who cares what someone else is saying about you? Who cares if they approve of you or not? Literally, who cares? Because Jesus approves of you. You have your heavenly Father's approval. Who else do you need? When we recognize just how powerless and helpless we are, and we're looking to find our identity in all of these other people, rather God looks at us and says, you are mine forever. Pray this morning that when our hearts are awakened to how we entered into this family of God, our hearts then will trust him more, including how we view everybody else in this world. They are simply people just like us in need of a savior. That's all they are. The cross is the great equalizer. It says you're all guilty. And in Christ, you're all righteous. So, since Jesus gave himself for you, come to him and find all of your comfort there. The next time you find yourself at a social gathering and someone is looking over you or looking right through you to pay attention to somebody else, you remember this one thing. You're Jesus' beloved possession. His love for you is eternal. His love for you is strong. You can rest in his favor today, tomorrow, and forever. And it literally does not matter what anybody else says is true of you. Jesus performed all the work. He is the one who got us into this kingdom. And his love for you is forever. Let him be your joy. Amen. Amen. Let's pray and ask the Lord to prepare us to come now to his table. Father, as we 
think of this act of justification that we are guilty, but in Christ we are now righteous. We praise you. We thank you. Oh, Father, I pray this morning that our hearts are, are made strong. Whatever we face this week, Lord, remind us of the message of the cross. Remind us the message of this table. We belong to you. And we pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.